Dr. R.J. Rushduni, RR161CH157, The Media, From the Easy Chair, Excellent Colloquies on Various Subjects. This is R.J. Rushduni, Easy Chair Number 267, June 9, 1992. This evening, Otto Scott, Douglas Murray, and I are going to discuss the media. The term the media covers a great deal of territory, and it certainly is inclusive of uh, things like Calcedon Report, but we're going to confine ourselves basically to the national media, things with a national scope, and uh, what they are doing that... uh, indicates a dereliction on their part. I'm going to ask Otto Scott to give an introduction to the subject. Thank you, Rush. I think the most arresting example of the national media in recent weeks has been its coverage and reaction to the riots in Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. For the first time in my recollection, and I became acquainted with the newspaper business when I was a boy many years ago and was involved in it for many years later on. For the first time in my recollection, the reaction of all the press to a single event was the same. Pravda never commanded such unanimity under the Soviets. The analysis the blame, the type of coverage, the angle of the story, as editors would say, was the same all the way from coast to coast. And the odd part about the coverage was that it's totally different from the reaction of the average person. The average person was horrified at the violence, at the destruction of innocent people, at the beatings, at the arson, and all the rest of it. And the press went out of its way to say that this was not the result of the rioters, but the result of lack of concern for the people in the inner cities, with an emphasis upon the black people, and with a total indifference to what happened to the Korean merchants and to the whites, and to the others involved. Now, when we have a free press that speaks with one voice, and one voice only, it amounts to the fact that the press has become politically correct. Political correctness has moved from the universities into the media and into the government. And that means that the rest of us are silently being told or tacitly told that there is only one viewpoint to be allowed and that any contradiction is going to lead to punishments of a social order. Now, I think this is a very sinister turn in the road because a public that's had its throat cut can no longer speak, and that is what we are moving into. I think, Otto, it would be 
worthwhile at this point to discuss the film footage of which less than a minute and a half was shown to the exclusion of other materials and what the jury saw when those uh, films were blown up. Well, they showed, they edited the tape, the videotape, down to 87 seconds. They edited out the part where Mr. King, is that his name? Yes, Rodney King. Rodney King lunged at the police and was hit with one of these electric instruments. Prods. Prods. Went to his knees, got up again and lunged again, and was hit with a prod again and got up again. And the press then moved in, and apparently they have a technique where they swing their batons to merely graze and not to hit the individual. But if he raises up from the ground, he feels that he will be hit. And the idea is to keep him prone until they can handcuff him and get control. All that was shown during the trial to the jury, frame by frame by frame by frame. And they realized that if those blows had actually hit him, he would have been injured to the point where he'd still be in the hospital. It was a bluff. It was a technique. That has never been explained to the general public. Now, the essence of propaganda is to tell part of the truth. A real good propaganda technique, and I remember this from my days in public relations, is always to stick to the facts, but not all the facts. So if you only give part of the facts, you are not lying, but you do mislead. And this, of course, is what our press is doing. Our press is sitting upon items that they do not want us to know and showing us only items that they can prove which they want us to believe in a certain way. We are, in other words, being manipulated by the media whose duty really is to report us and not to direct us. Douglas, mm -hmm. would you like to comment on the subject? Well, the common denominator uh, of unanimity uh, in the press is the question to my mind. How does this arise? There simply there can't be a conspiracy because these people don't all talk to each other. Um, the only place they could have developed this attitude of, of uh, single-minded thinking is from their education. And so it's really a, uh, a result, a direct result, of the education that they've received in, in uh, liberal institutions by uh, Marxist-oriented uh, professors. And uh, they've now got an army in the press which is leading the charge in this culture war. Well, the press is like every other industry. Every industry has its pattern and fashion. And you, you're correct when you say this comes from the education. They come out of schools of journalism now are really schools of communication. They don't use the term journalism, but it's communication across the board. They all come out with the same orientation. They go into the sitting room, the uh, city room or the studio or whatever, and everyone there has had the same education and agrees on the same central points. If, for instance, you filed a story or I filed a story on the L.A. riots that took a different 
it wouldn't get printed, but it would lose you your job because you can't get out of step. You know, as well as I do, we all do, that we're witnessing a phenomenon among the younger people of the United States. They are politically correct, and anyone who doesn't agree is a fascist or a monster or an imbecile. In any event, it's enough to wash you out. And, of course, the press is controlled in a managerial sense by the editors and the producers of TV shows and radio shows. Now, the second echelon up is older than the reporter on the front line. The second echelon up is in the, between their 40s and their 50s. This is the 60s generation. And we're seeing the results now of an entire generation of indoctrination. I would never have believed it if I hadn't seen it. But I never before realized the full force of fashion in intellectual positions. I think it's worth noting that no one has a right to expect the media to be impartial. That's impossible. They're going to represent a position, just as the Chalcedon Report represents a uh, position. The requirement is that whatever your point of view or your position, that you be honest, that you do not lie distort or misrepresent. To give an example of uh, this kind of thing, when Vice President Quayle spoke about the television show Murphy Brown and the immoral values it con uh, conveyed, how it was really an implicit attack on family values, on biblical standards. The media at once acted as though Vice President Quayle had attacked the citadels of freedom, had denied freedom of expression, freedom of speech, and so on. They acted as though he had talked like an idiot. But the ironic fact is that apparently Quayle got the idea from an article in the Washington Post by a very liberal woman. And he said substantially what she did. But she was not attacked. She had the right uh, political stance. She was politically correct. So she could say it. But Quayle could not say the same thing without a savage, blistering attack on him. Well, did you uh, hear the real irony of that situation? Shortly after that confrontation took place, the network started charging an additional $100,000 a minute more for ads on the Murphy Brown TV program. <laughs> well, it was wonderful publicity for the program. It certainly was. And it reminds me of the accusation that Chastity is now considered a religious position. Yes. So we have two things operating then. We have not only political correctness, but political correctness which is only acceptable from a certain viewpoint by certain people. Uh, in effect, the opinions of those who differ with the politically correct crowd have been ruled out of order. 
Now, of course, what this does to freedom of speech is something we all know. Everyone in the United States knows that we do not have freedom of speech. We are free to speak to an extent, but we are also free to be punished for using the freedom of speech. So it's very similar to the recent election in South Africa. In South Africa, the corporations sent letters to their employees saying those who voted against the new black government to come would lose their jobs. The ballots were not open. The balloting was the balloting was not secret, it was open. The ballots were numbered so that a record could be kept of who voted how. Now this is very similar to some of the developments that have taken place here. Those who contributed to David Duke, for instance, received death threats because their name and addresses were printed in the newspapers. They were obtainable from the uh, election commission. Those who voted for Pat Buchanan may find themselves in trouble in times to come. Those people on the jury in the L.A. case received death threats. And even before this, there was a closing down of freedom of speech and discussion in the United States on a variety of topics. To take certain positions on certain issues was to label yourself as prejudiced against certain groups because those groups might favor a certain position. Mm -hmm. Let me elaborate just a little bit on the distortion that's taking place that you touched on in current events that uh, enhances the media's point of view. The Washington Times <clears throat> in March uh, uh, wrote a story about the National Park Service came out and admitted that its official crowd counts for the women's rights rally was really only 250,000 and not the 500,000 reported by the news media or the 750,000 that were claimed by the organizers. Deliberate distortion to make it look larger than it really was. Then on the uh, Dan Rather's uh, CBS News, uh, there was a congressional candidate, Michael Bailey of Indiana, who opposes abortion, and he had ads during the uh, election which showed actual aborted uh, fetus. And uh, the, uh, they put this uh, blurring technique of censoring the content of the picture. I mean, what's the point of showing the picture if you're going to eliminate the, the true content of the picture? So uh, they have become much more, more overt in their censorship about what they want people to see and what they don't want them to see. Well, we've discussed the newspapers uh, and not directly television. And television has become a monster because it's the babysitter uh, for the younger generation to a great extent and the 60s generation the student rioters uh, were brought up on television and uh, admittedly influenced by it, imitated it. The hippie style was picked up 
from old silent pictures and 30s pictures of revolutionary mobs in the French Revolution, Tale of Two Cities and that sort of thing, so that I think it was Oscar Wilde who made the statement, not a very good source, but he said, I believe, that uh, nature imitates art. And we could say life imitates art because that's what's happening. We have an image created by the media, by films and television, and the world at large imitating it. It's been uh, demonstrated that anything touted on television is very quickly picked up by the younger generation. They are profoundly influenced by it. Their language, their speech is colored by what they hear on television and in the films. I often think that the producers of television go out into public and listen for the words that they have injected into some of the um, TV scripts just to find out how effective they are. I think that's become their canary in the coal mine, their method of determining how effective they are at communicating these ideas. Well, Ben Stein, Jr. wrote a book once called The View from Sunset yeah. Boulevard in which he said that almost all these scripts are produced by about a hundred writers, almost all of whom come from the same area in Manhattan. I and talked to a scriptwriter once, and this was a good many years back, 15 perhaps, and I said, uh, rather facetiously, these scripts look as or read as though potheads produced them. And he said, that's no joke, it's literally true. Pot and cocaine. Yes. And also a view which is antithetical to the facts of American life in which fascism lives in all the small towns of America mm -hmm. and various and sundry other delusions. But nevertheless, if they're promoted in one form or another across the country, they have the same effect upon young people today as our literature had in our youth. Edgar Allan Poe revisited. Well, it's worse than that. When you're young, you want to catch up with the world. You want to find out what the world is doing, and you want to catch up with the parade. I used to read fiction in order to find out about society when fiction was relatively free. It wasn't completely free, it wasn't explicitly sexual as it is today, but on the other hand, the implications was, were clear enough and the meaning was clear enough. But now we have fiction which is totally at odds with the facts of American life, completely different than anything we actually live. Minorities are misrepresented as a matter of course, and in this case they're given a spurious virtue. They're never guilty of crimes or prejudice. Everything is loaded upon white middle-class individuals, and especially white Christians and white males. So we have here a false literature and a false press, 
and therefore young people have a false idea of reality. And in the long run, this is going to cause more trouble than our government or the politically correct people can believe. Well, I think it's what's contributing to this current malaise in uh, the United States today is, is, you know, what started out as a vague discontent that something is wrong has become much more intensified. And uh, because of this relentless daily outpouring of negativity toward Christian values, and toward every other value. The, uh, it's almost like being nagged. If you're nagged 24 hours a day, if you have somebody sitting on your shoulder to tell you what you, what you did wrong, watch out, some, something is going to happen to you, you're not eating right, you're not living right, you're not thinking right, you eventually go crazy. I have never seen young people, and never expected to see young people going around with somber faces. Do you remember when youth was a time of laughter and joy and singing? I remember singing at night. We actually used to sing in the bus. Mm -hmm. Traveling at night, yes. everybody would break into song, and we would sing the old songs that we sang in school. It's been years since I've heard anybody sing. Well, a few years ago, Otto, I read something in a periodical which uh, made reference to the two of us. And it cited as the fact that Christians are, the word was not used, but basically yahoos with no appreciation for art. Uh, and their justification for using us to illustrate that was that we gave no evidence of reading modern novels. And I sat down and wrote to the person, I said, I suspect we both have a far more extensive knowledge of novels and literature up until fairly recent years than uh, perhaps some professors. But I said, I gave up reading the modern novel when I began to realize that it was equivalent to jumping into a cesspool. And I said, uh, Otto Scott himself used to be a short story writer, and he has abandoned fiction because fiction has become something that is totally alien to the world around us. It constructs an artificial world that it resembles a cesspool more than ordinary life. I never got an answer back. No, I'm not surprised. But the result is that people are killing themselves trying to imitate art. Yes. <laughs> yes. I wish the writers would do it. Well, we have the publishers to thank. I the strangest reaction the last time I had a New York uh, copy editor. I remember on the James book when I described his homosexual proclivities as a vice and the little girl from Swarthmore who was doing the copy editing when she flagged that particular sentence said some people don't agree that it is a vice. Do you really want to keep this in? 
and I wrote back, it is advice to me and I am the author. Mm-hmm. And it stayed in. But I'm not sure that I could have had that book published today at all. Well, around 1950, I attended a meeting of a great many important people, men in the sciences, the arts, industry, uh, really uh, major figures, Nobel Prize winning scientists and so on. And I was the youngest and the most out of place, so to speak, in that I had hardly anything to my name except one article that had uh, been published from coast to coast. Uh, reprinted uh, hundreds of thousands of times and written into the congressional record. I was very interested at that meeting that one person stated that uh, a novel had been returned by the publisher with suggestions for... uh, making it acceptable for publication. And he cited the suggestion. They were really uh, to sexualize as much as he could. And he indicated he was not going to bother with that particular publisher. Now that early, that trend was in effect. Well, on almost all our national magazines, They do not like a completed article, and this goes back 25 years. They did not like to receive a finished article. What they wanted was an outline of an article which you would suggest, and then they would change the outline to have it slant the way the magazine felt was correct. If you didn't go along with that, they'd throw the suggestion out, and you were not commissioned. Recently, I sent and I was requested to send an article to a conservative magazine, and out of uh, kindness toward the people, I won't tell you the name of the magazine. But the, the editor wrote and suggested that I write something about business because he said, and I quote, that's something you understand. <laughs> and I wrote the article about business and conservatives in which I castigated both for their indifference to one another. I received in due course a a letter from an associate editor saying that the entire idea of the business issue had been dropped and that they didn't know when my article would appear, if ever, and suggested that I place it somewhere else in case I didn't want to wait forever. Well, the uh, disposition now is such that I really have not for years submitted an article to any magazine. And I used to have uh, some published from time to time. I had no problem getting them published a good many years ago, but I gave up on it. The rigidity that had set in and the feeling that uh, the writer had only one duty 
namely to express what the editor wanted. That's very, very well said. That's what it amounts to. Mm-hmm. What the editor would have written if the editor could have written. <laughs> yes. Uh, uh, this is really not uh, the place for this, but I can't resist it. Uh, I read a definition of a critic recently, and it uh, was it went thus: a critic is a eunuch at a gang bang who can only admire the performance of other eunuchs. Oh, great! <laughs> and uh, the literary world is now full of eunuchs. Well, cowards. Yes. Really cowards. You mentioned TV just in passing, mm-hmm. and I, I meant to bring up the fact that there, every script which mentions even tangentially homosexuality is submitted to a group of homosexuals for their approval yes. before it appears on television. Now, no group of Christians are allowed that privilege. No. Well, this is a very important subject because it affects every one of us. We're all surrounded by the media. We find it at our front door or our mailbox, in our house, radio and television, and it's in most places, although not in this county, in the form of films. We're one of those counties without a single movie theater. We're barbarians, I guess. We have video shops. Yes, we do have some, but they're uh, going downhill. They're not doing too well now. Well, Well, I think the media is not only destroying the country, but it is destroying itself. All one has to do is look at the fact that the newspapers are declining with great rapidity. Did you know, by the way, that... uh, a couple of the papers in San Diego merged. Yes, I knew Jerry Warren fell out. I'm not too unhappy about that. <laughs> because he fired me uh, from my book column because I wrote about the Bible during the Christmas season and he said that's the last straw. <laughs> so I was happy to see him retire. Well, you know the new paper is... Uh, continuing to receive the Chalcedon Report, which one of the old papers received. Oh, I didn't know that. Yes. Oh, I'm so happy to hear that. You're, uh... I'm outlasted them. Uh, yes, you've outlasted them. Should and they're reading you every month. Should have pointed out to them that people have been writing reviews on the Bible for centuries. <laughs> <laughs> Well, of course, part of the newspaper problem is the uh, decline in literacy. Yes. In the the metropolitan populace, with its influx of Mm -hmm. foreigners who don't even put out papers of their own, with the exception Mm -hmm. of the Spanish community, I don't know whether the Oriental community is putting out its own papers or not, in San Francisco, Chinatown. Chinatown, they always have, I believe. But at any rate, you have here a metropolitan populace 
which does not buy and, and believe the newspapers. Mm -hmm. This is affecting the New York Times, which is now making all its money from the small country newspapers that it's picked up. The Times itself does, it breaks even on a good year. The LA Times has had to go farther and farther into the suburbs in order to maintain readership. The Washington Post is in a unique position because there's a higher level of literacy among the government employees in Washington, D.C. But across the board, people are not buying afternoon newspapers. They're turning in instead on the 6 o'clock news. And they get the stock exchange reports on the 6 o'clock news. So they don't get the paper for the market reports or anything of the sort. And <clears throat> the other thing is, but they all sound the same. You're not going to get any news of any real importance in your own locality from your local paper because it's afraid to offend the powers that be. All their scandals are in some other part of the country. Well, in the 1930s, there were four daily papers in San Francisco. There are two now the Chronicle and the Examiner, and they have a combined Sunday edition. The old call and the news are gone. And those uh, papers had a tremendous circulation. It was not unusual for people to get two and three papers because the difference was substantial. The difference in coverage. Yes. I, I was thinking that when you were talking about the difference in the feminine parade, how many there were. Well, every different newspaper used to have a different number that it collected at the crowd. A Republican paper always gave a small crowd at the Democrat meeting and vice versa. And uh, the diversity was, was interesting. I remember when New York had six daily papers mm -hmm. in New York City. Yes. There are only two now, aren't there? Well, let's see. There's the Post and the New York Times, and uh, I can't think of any the other Daily major. News. The, yes, and the Daily News. The Daily News is hanging on by its fingernails. Yes. San Francisco News was my first in employer, mm. and I remember the masthead on the paper, the Scripps Howard paper, and it used to say, Give the people light, and they will find their own way. Mm. Nowadays, it's the mushroom uh, point of view. Uh, give the people manure and keep them in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> That's very good. <laughs> I met Roy Howard once, you know. I was called in to be uh, disciplined. <laughs> and I, years ago, I had written a parody of Roy Howard and the Communist Menace. I can't imagine you being disappointed. No, <laughs> well, I was, and I won't go into all the details, but when I walked into, I remember when I was called in and his secretary said, are you Scott? And I said, yes, and she said, you're in trouble. That was a great, great <laughs> feeling. And he had iron gray hair and a salt and pepper mustache. And he was wearing a tweed shirt with a tweed bow tie and tweed trousers, all made of the same bolted cloth. And I'd never seen anything like that. <laughs> I mean, it took my breath away. Uh, and I, I looked around for the jacket, and there was one. Same bolted cloth hanging 
on the clothes tree. And at any rate, I won't go into why I was disciplined. There was good reason for it, I assure you. But when I left, I said, does he always dress like that? And they said, yes. I said, how come? They said, oh, that was a style among skilled working men in World War I, and he liked it, and he's always kept it. He owned United Press. He could stand next to the drapes and disappear. <laughs> yes, he could. <laughs> yes, he could. <laughs> but there was an awful lot of room for diversity of expression. Mm -hmm. The editors did not tell you the slant. They told you to cover the story. And they printed more or less what you brought back. They didn't change it fundamentally. They didn't print it always in its entirety, but they kept the substance. Now they tell the reporter the angle. And if he brings in something that they don't think is the proper angle, it is not printed. And if he does it too often, he won't stay. Mm -hmm. It's like crossing the professor. Mm -hmm. Well, I think this, I was just wondering a moment ago what the genesis is on this uh, term political correctness. Does anybody know where it originated from? No, I think it was it originated really as a satiric observation. Somebody, and nobody knows who, observed the synonymous opinions that were being expressed and called them politically correct. And every so often you'll see a letter defending them because they're saying, what would you expect us to do to encourage fascism, to encourage prejudice, to encourage bigotry? And the, the central idea is that people should not be free to say the wrong things, lest it offend. Mm -hmm. Yes, there are people who have publicly expressed the opinion that uh, Rush Limbaugh should be silenced. He should not be allowed to speak. And they accuse him of being a fascist. Well, do you remember in 1968 when the UN debate was going on just before the Six-Day War? We listened to it in New York every day, and they were fascinating debates. There was an uproar at one point when the ambassador from Israel spoke about the six million Jews that were killed in World War II. He was followed by a train of other ambassadors raging about the fact that their deaths were not mentioned. Mm -hmm. Well, then the war erupted. If you recall, Israel jumped the gun. And at the end of that one week of war, the UN went off the air and never came back again. Hmm. No debates from the UN have ever been broadcast since 1968 because it was charged that they had provided a platform for anti-Semitism. Limbaugh's uh, uh, method, incidentally, uh, for countering that people that hurl this epithet of fascism uh, at him is defying fascism. And he finds very few people that mm -hmm. use the word as an epithet that know what fascism is. They confuse it with racism. They, well, let's say it was racist, but they consider it only racism. 
they don't see it as a method of governance or economics. Well, fascism came from Italy, and Mussolini was definitely not racist. He went along with Hitler because as a partner he was pushed into it, and as a subordinate partner he'd lost his freedom. Hitler always credited Mussolini with inventing the system, Mm -hmm. which I think is not quite true. Mussolini was more of a scholar and more organized. He was a newspaper editor, if you Mm -hmm. recall, before the war at a time when that required considerable literacy. And it was really the old Roman state. It was uh, in a device whereby... Mussolini was going to make socialism palatable to the masses by retaining the facade of freedom while taking away the substance of freedom, of private property, of everything. We're close to it. Yes, we are a fascist power now because we have the facade of freedom, we have the vote, we have our name on the title deed to properties, industry is supposedly owned by shareholders, but at every point, the state totally controls everything, and that's fascism. Through regulatory agencies. Yes. And the media is interesting because the media is the only area which so far can say what it chooses, but it chooses to say what suits the government. And I think that's very significant. Yes. Well, how about remedies? Uh, You know, there's been some attempts to remedy this lock that the media has on this, what really is a mind control situation. This political correctness, I often think, is a term... liberal press has agreed upon uh, for mass mind control. It's a more palatable term uh, that they can use to describe mass mind control. But there's been some attempts. Uh, Jesse Helms suggested buying the media outlets uh, as a means of of changing them. Uh, Don Wildman of American Family Association is using the boycott but uh, I don't think either one of these methods, uh, either one or both, will achieve the desired result over the long haul. I think that the, the, you've got to get your news from as many sources as possible. Well, the general attitude of conservatives and Christians is to deplore what the media does without mm-hmm. investing in the media. The easiest way to get into the act would be to get into the advertising business. Because it's the advertising business that supports the media, not the readers. And that's the reason that the media can pay no attention to what the readers think. I have never been able to persuade either Christians or conservatives or conservative Christians to get into the advertising business. They don't understand that the advertising business is what supports the media. You cannot change the media without withdrawing or increasing its advertising. The left-wing advertising agencies starve their enemies and feed their friends. That's very simple. Why do you think it is at a time when people are being taxed 
uh, virtually half their income. They work almost uh, six months out of the year now, five and a half months out of the year. Uh, the government is uh, bankrupt. They can't pay their bills on demand. Uh, they need their, uh, they're staying up night and day looking for more revenue. Why haven't they taxed advertising? Because advertising created the media, which creates political offices. It, it, up until now, it has been considered the only vehicle by which you can get office or stay in office. Now, there's no reason in the world why advertising, the only industry in the country that's untaxed, should continue this way. It's an enormous industry with all kinds of money. It, uh, if it buys a truck, if an advertising, uh, it, it, it just doesn't pay the same taxes. I think one of the mistakes, too, on the part of those who are conservatives or Christians is that when they confront this problem, they want to start at the top. They want to go in and buy something big and have a major impact on the country. And it doesn't work. It doesn't work. Nothing works from the top. No, and I have seen efforts like this in one area after another for the last 50 years. And a great many people of means have thrown millions down the drain in this top-down approach. Then uh, another factor... We have a wide open market if we are ready to use it, if we are ready to pay for it. For example, uh, John Upton of our staff has a list of 81 television stations that are hungry for programming. They don't have anything. They just have to use what... Uh, they can get in the way of old reruns, and they would welcome something. Now, John, for 3500 to 5000 can produce one half-hour segment that these people can use. They're begging him for it, but nobody is interested in funding it. And yet... If there are 81 stations, there are 200, if one really worked at it, where you could feed in material. And these people, they're in major metropolitan areas, they're in uh, not-so-metropolitan areas, they're from coast to coast. And they're dependent on the networks, and they don't like it. But no one will produce material for them. Well, the problem is that... <clears throat> You, there are lots of people that could put up the 5,000, but they'd immediately tell John how to do it. Yes. The world is filled with editors. I can tell you as a writer <laughs> yes. that there is many more editors than there are writers. Mm -hmm. Remember what Jimmy Durante said? Everyone wants to get into the act. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, what is happening from the bottom up is that Whereas 50 years ago, 
the many media did not exist, it is now everywhere from coast to coast. Well, look at the newsletters. It's the, they're, they're the equivalent of our summer stuff. Yes. Uh, in the field of Christian education alone, the homeschoolers' periodicals, uh, the Christian school periodicals, there are many of them from coast to coast in a state or in a region, and they supply their readers with a tremendous amount of specialized knowledge in their field and how to fight the state in their field and so on. You have, of course, a number of economic reports, something that did not exist not too many years ago, and there are now uh, very, very numerous. I have no idea how many there are. Thousands. Thousands of them, and they're uh, doing well. Then you have the political reports, some uh, tremendously important ones, very, very influential, uh, that are to be found all over the country. I was talking and, to... I'm uh, sorry to interrupt. That's right. I was talking to Don McElvaney today, mm -hmm. and he said that he has a relatively small circulation in Utah, maybe 500. And yet he said thousands of people read his reports in Utah because the subscribers duplicate them mm -hmm. by the hundreds mm -hmm. and redistribute them. So he estimates his actual readership at several times. Yes. That's true of all of them. People will reproduce an article in uh, the Chalcedon Report and circulate a few hundred copies. Don't forget word of mouth. Yes. In my period on Madison Avenue, we estimated word of mouth as the best of all vehicles. Mm -hmm. Information can be carried across this country as quickly as a telephone. Mm -hmm. And something that is said or written which strikes a nerve is repeated overnight all across the country. Yes, I recall some years ago a very amusing incident that occurred somewhere in my travels in the South. And it was a delightful story. Within days, it was being repeated from coast to coast. People were telling you. Yes. I'm sure. And I believe it appeared in the Reader's Digest or someplace else. With some other name on it. Yes. And uh, it actually began in a fact. And it uh, swept the country sure. because it caught the fancy of people. That's right. And... Uh, Whenever there's been a humorous story, for example, about the Kennedys after the episode in Florida, there were stories told in uh, Washington, D.C. that were being repeated in California within a day. Sure. Well, it happened to me once with the silent majority. I was astonished at the way that... that <laughs> yes. And then I read where Nora Ephron had introduced it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the problems with people accepting 
the idea that uh, reform is going to come from the bottom is that inevitably that takes a long time. And the media has seen to it that people's perception of how long it takes to solve a problem should be very short. There's a now society, now yeah. generation, now society, and people are looking for quick fixes. They're looking for aspirin tablets for their headache. And uh, it's not that simple. If it took two, three generations for things to get the way they are, it's logical to assume that it's going to take two or three generations to wind them back the other way. And well, people are not willing to accept that. They won't wind back the other way. What they're more apt to do is to crack. It's almost something like the unexpected nature of the presidential campaign. The reason that most large corporations gave up computer projections is that there was no way to put into the program the unexpected event, which distorts everything. Perot, in this instance, turns out to have been an unexpected event. Now, I'm sure there are people behind Mr. Perot. I, I've come to the conclusion that McElvaney has a very good point on that score. But they cannot program, neither Mr. Perot nor anyone else can program the effect of rendering both the major parties hollow. This is going to have a fallout which is going to go beyond Perot, even if he is elected. Because once you knock Humpty Dumpty off the wall, you can't really put him back together. We're going into a new area. The same thing, in my opinion, is true of the media. The media suddenly exposed itself in its coverage of the L.A. riots, and it lost a lot. It lost its credibility. Mm -hmm. Yes, and uh, things happen so rapidly nowadays in the way of new developments. For example, <coughs> the fax machine is revolutionizing Mail. Uh, America. It is making it possible for people to communicate in a very rapid way. It is cutting into the mail service, and uh, it is making it possible for people to transmit instant information to key people all over the world. I had someone uh, in Europe today tell me, well, I'll fax the matters to you mm -hmm. as soon as I have them ready. Sure. You know that the fax machine was available in World War II. One of my first jobs in electronics was to repair fax machines in the business district, uh, financial district mm -hmm. in San Francisco that had been installed during World War II. But because we were unable to send data over long distance lines, it never achieved the importance that it has today in the business mm -hmm. community. Mm -hmm. I didn't know that. Well, I think we're going to see some dramatic developments in the days ahead. I do too, and I don't think they're predictable. No. I know one that was described to me a few years <laughs> back as something that is being worked on is uh, the equipment whereby a book can be typeset and then run off and bound as a continuous operation. Well, I know it can be scanned. Mm -hmm. 
and turned into a, uh, a program, computer program, in a matter of an hour or so. Well, this would enable the publisher to run off only a given number of copies and then to do it again at the right time. Hmm. I think we are going to see a breakdown of the giants in the media and their replacement by some new uh, approaches. Well, I do too, and if you recall years ago, I compared this to Gutenberg's introduction yes. to print. Uh, so far, it's in its pioneering stages, but let us assume that Perot is elected, or not elected, it doesn't make any difference, if it goes into the House, and the House, being democratic, will give the nod to Mr. Clinton. Uh, these fax machines and newsletters and so forth will probably expand geometrically in protest. Mm -hmm. yes. And there will be an argument against keeping the Electoral College because it's been misused. Mm -hmm. And that will lead to an effort by the liberal elite to write up a new constitution. And that will be a dogfight par excellence. The news tonight carried a statement that a drive is underway to bind the electors so that they cannot play games and then to bind uh, Congress somehow, if it goes to Congress, a disputed election, so that there is no brokering and selling out of any particular candidate. Well, this, <clears throat> this sort of uh, argument stamp is, is totalitarian at its heart. Mm -hmm. To bind the decisions of other people yeah. is a totalitarian thing yeah. to do. I mean, the very people who present such a matter, such an argument, should be driven out of public life. Well, we had a presidency uh, as a result of a deal in the Electoral College some years ago. Oh, sure. We've had several presidencies stolen yes. in the 19th century, and, of course, Nixon, uh, the great non-fighter, let John Kennedy steal an election from him. Yes. Uh, but to bind the decisions of individuals mm -hmm. is, at its heart, a dictatorial answer. Yes. Well, our time is about up. Thank you all for listening. Authorized by the Calcedon Foundation. Archived by the Mount Olive Tape Library. Digitized by ChristRules.com.